If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. This episode is brought to you by FX's The Veil, starring Elizabeth Moss. FX's The Veil is an international spy thriller that follows two women as they play a deadly game of truth and lies on the road from Istanbul to Paris and London. One woman has a secret and the other has a mission to reveal it before thousands of lives are lost. FX's The Veil, now streaming only on Hulu. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. She's described in the, the record as an aged quack with a long face. That was Alan Withy discussing medical history. Baron Baker spoke out and said, We're not little Roosevelt's black boys, you know, we're British subjects and you treat us with respect. And that was Stephen Bourne on Black Servicemen in the Second World War. Hello and welcome to the History Extra podcast with me, Rob Attar. This podcast is brought to you by the team behind BBC History magazine, which is the UK's best-selling history magazine. You can find it in all good news agents and on subscription. Plus we have a Kindle edition available on the Amazon website and an iPad edition on the Apple newsstand. We've also recently launched a Kindle Fire edition and that's available on the Kindle newsstand. You can find out more details of all of this plus great subscription offers on our website historyextra.com. If you have any comments about the podcast or any of our other products, you can get in touch with us through email, podcast at historyextra.com, on Twitter, at History Extra, or Facebook, forward slash History Extra.
A new project funded by the Wellcome Trust is attempting to map all existing references to medical practitioners in England, Wales and Ireland during the early modern period. Our section editor, Charlotte Hodgman, caught up with Dr Alan Withy, one of the project's research fellows, to find out more about medical practice between 1500 and 1715 and the types of people who provided medical services. Alan, can you begin by giving us a bit of background to the project you're currently working on and what what you're helping to achieve from it? Sure. Well, we are uh, a group of scholars based at the University of Exeter, uh, led by Professor Jonathan Barry and Dr Peter Elmer. Uh, both of whom are medical historians. Essentially what we're doing is we're in the process of building a massive database of medical practitioners across early modern England, Wales and Ireland uh, and Scotland to an extent. Um, we're, we're trying to build basically individual biographies of all the medical practitioners that we can find. Um, so not just names, numbers and locations but a much more detailed uh, database which can then enable us to answer a lot of specific research questions really. Okay and, and you're specifically looking at the changes to medical practice aren't you between, during the early modern periods? That's right there's a number of important things that we want to look at I mean for example uh, we want to look at the growth uh, the extent of the growth of medicine and medical personnel uh, across uh, Britain at this point and things like their status their their place within society. You know, what do practitioners do at this uh, point? How do they fit into their communities? Also, more generally, um, the extent to which Britain possessed this sort of medical marketplace by the end of the 18th century. It's spoken about a lot, but not really quantified. So the purpose of what we're doing is to say, well, you know, how many practitioners are there? We We know a lot already about general details about practitioners. You know, we know a lot about individual um, areas, maybe towns like London, Norfolk have had studies done on them. But um, the general perception is still that there were relatively few practitioners across the country as a whole. Um, now, we can already begin to challenge this. Peter Elmer's database was um, something he's been working on for a number of years already, and it already contains around about 15,000 names um, and we are at the start of a five-year project to add to that and you know we can already challenge this view that there, that there were few practitioners in Britain because we already know that there were many. The interesting question to ask is well were there in fact um, as many people practicing medicine in early modern Britain as there are today and if so that begs very interesting questions about our our understanding of medical provision in the past. You know, we tend to have this view that practice is inadequate, there aren't many doctors and so on. You know, we can immediately already start to challenge that. And out of this sort of 15,000, how many of them would have been um, sort of formal uh, medical practitioners and had some sort of training? Well, that's a very interesting question. In fact, that that's a central part of what we do is the issue of training. Um, there are um, sort of categories of practitioner and if I, if I read you some of the list of names that we can find practitioners under, the scale of the potential problem becomes apparent. For example, um, physic, spelt um, in three or four different ways, can be a title for a practitioner. Doctor of medicine, 
Doctor of Physic, Licentiate, Surgeon, Chirurgeon, Mountbank, Barber, Apothecary, Druggist, Chemist, Physician, Chemist, spelt C-H-Y-M-I-S-T, Midwife, Peruke Maker. All of these can be medical practitioners. Um, to return to your question about formal, well, uh, I guess it depends how you define formal. Um, there were an elite group of licensed, um, licensed by the Archbishop of Canterbury or diocesan licenses, practitioners. There were those who went to Oxford and Cambridge and perhaps abroad to train. They would be perhaps more the minority. Um, you have those who uh, um, belong to certain corporations and you know things like the Barber Surgeons Company and so on. But then you have this mass of other types of practitioner um, who perform exactly the same role and function and use largely the same types of medicine but have not necessarily had the training. That's not to say that they're inferior, but they just don't necessarily either feel that the training's necessary or, um, you know, it, 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 uh, it's not available to them. And have you found any changes in medical practice between um, 1500 and 1715, which is kind of the period you're looking at? There are certain things that come and go. For example, in the um, second half of the 17th century, so around about the Civil War period, um, we start to get what's called chemical medicines. Um, these are based on theories of uh, Johannes Baptist van Helmont and uh, Paracelsus. So it's an alternative theory to the humoral uh, views of the body which predominate. Um, based on metallic and chemical substances rather than herbal medicines quite often. Now, it's very popular with Puritan reformers. Um, and one of the questions that we're looking at is to say, well, um, how, how widespread were beliefs in this? What sort of practitioners practiced it and where? For example, my area of specialization is, is early modern Wales. Uh, an area where traditionally you, you might not have expected to find that, but I'm finding quite a lot of evidence that it, it was there and it was around and sometimes away from towns and in rural areas. You know, again, we, we, we shouldn't assume that because people are in a rural area, they have no access to medicine or that the medicine they have access to is in any way inferior. So was early modern medicine as inadequate as most of us have been led to believe? Ah, well, that's a very interesting question. It depends how you define inadequate, really. Um, it's based on a different perspective of what, of what people thought medicine was going to do, in a sense. Um, if you subscribe to a model of the body that says that illness is something that has to be driven out, then early modern medicine works in the sense that there are many things which will allow you to purge, vomit, and sweat, you know, bad substances out of you. Um, there's a different, an entirely different basis upon which, you know, um, disease is thought to occur. So medicine is tailored to that. In a modern sense, of course, it doesn't always do, um, it doesn't always work. I mean, it doesn't treat the condition at the heart. I mean, it's worth mentioning as well that early modern medicine often treats the symptom, not the cause. Um, and it views something like uh, a headache as the um, the condition itself rather than a symptom of an underlying condition. So um, there are certainly substances around them which are still around today, which we would use. I mean, people would use honey for a sore throat and also honey for wounds, which is a common thing these days. Um, uh, the, um, you know, there's... this. 
certain pain-killing substances in modern drugs that aren't plant-based, um, which were known then, but although they didn't know that the particular chemical was the active agent. So, um, you know, there's, there's, yeah, the question of whether it works, it's, it's more to do with whether people believed it worked, I think. Um, it's, I mean, we, today we would call the placebo effect, um, but certain medicines begin to build up a reputation and they find their way into manuscript remedy collections and people say, you know, it is proved. Therefore, if you strongly believe that something will cure you, it's likely that it may have some sort of pacifying effect if it doesn't remove the symptoms altogether. And it also, if somebody gets better who happens to have taken a particular remedy, then naturally they will attribute it to that remedy and the thing starts to gain a little bit of uh, momentum. As to whether it's um, as inadequate as we are led to believe, it's certainly often painful and counterintuitive to the modern eye, um, but whether or not it worked or not, I think is a, is a difficult question to answer in, without modern biases, really. Okay. And have you found any geographical patterns to medical provision during this period? Um, well, quite often uh, there'll be clusters around towns. Um, early modern Britain at this point is uh, a place where there are fewer large towns. Um, you know, they tend to be places like Chester, like Bristol, obviously London. And then um, in Wales, there are very few larger towns, but the market towns tend to um, get clusters of practitioners. But we, we, as I said earlier, we shouldn't assume that the, there's just this broad space with nobody there in the middle of the country. I mean, you know, the, the, uh, many of the practitioners that we're finding now are in very distant parts of the country. Um, I was looking at one the other day in a place called Clunog in, in Carnarvonshire, in North Wales, which is, you know, a good number of miles from the nearest town, and yet this guy had some quite, um, well, very up-to-date medical books in his, in his probate inventory, suggesting that he was you know, really up to speed with what was happening outside. Okay. And can we tell anything about the part doctors play within their communities outside of their medical activities? Yeah, well, I mean, if it might help to think about the types of sources that we're looking at here. Um, I mean, we're actually undertaking a systematic search of archival material, not just on what doctors do in terms of their medical practice, but virtually anything outside. So, for example, um, one of the things we're looking at are, pro are property deeds. And these sorts of things tell us... Um, uh, the, the relative wealth of practitioners in this period, but also who they're engaging with in their community. Who are they un buying property with? It's quite common at that time to sort of lease and release property and lands as part of probate processes and also rents. You know, it's a lot quite complicated system of income, really. But who are they buying these things with? Who are they entering into business agreements with? Um, things like parish records can tell us whether doctors hold any positions in the parish, such as overseers, such as church wardens, any positions of responsibility. Um, also, poor law records, for example, can tell us who the parish was engaging in, in terms of practitioners to treat the poor. These can tell us quite a lot. In towns and cities, um, we can tell uh, whether practitioners, for example, are part of any guilds, whether they're part of clubs later on as we move into the 18th century. Um, and even things like letters, personal diaries, tell us the social circles in which they're moving in, as well as their business activities. So, yeah, we can actually tell quite a lot. And how were medical practitioners viewed by the communities in which they lived? Were they, was it a respected profession? Um, well, there's a popular figure of the doctor. I mean, the, the, 
um, Bernard Mandeville, a 17th century poet, said, um, physicians value fame and wealth above the drooping patient's health. Um, it's, uh, I think, a, a sort of a love-hate relationship, really. I mean, uh, the, as I said, the popular caricature of the doctor as, as a, 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 an inept figure in some ways, but I guess we have to remember that in many cases in a small community, you know, your local doctor is your only method of recourse. You'll certainly, most people have some understanding of medicine and uh, medicine in the home and self-treat. But, you know, there's many examples that we're already finding in the database, things like the, the biographies of surgeons and things like their memorial inscriptions can tell us a lot. For example, um, an interesting sounding guy called Abby Aki, spelled Q-U-I, um, from the surgeon uh, town of Malmesbury in Wiltshire, died in 1675. His epitaph reads, uh, he who by charter thousands held their breath lies here the captive of triumphant death if drugs or matchless skill could death reclaim his life had been immortal as his fame that's a malmesbury practitioner a malmesbury surgeon so you know not a london a society doctor you know they, they can be held in quite high regard because ultimately you know their, their role is to help to aid people and have you found any other interesting characters within your research Oh yeah, we have. I mean, this one of the nice things about doing this is, as well as the broader general themes, we have the individual stories. For um, example, I mean, just in terms of names, we have people like Doctor Cut, Doctor Savage. We've even got a Doc Martin. But we have people like Margaret Briers, um, known only because she was fined five pounds and imprisoned by the College of Physicians for illicit practice. Um, she uh, confessed to having given many sudorifics for the French pox, which is a venereal disease, as well as ointments and plasters and potions, um, both on her own and with other surgeons. She's not supposed to do this. The Royal College of Surgeons, you know, she's not unlicensed, so they uh, tend to chase these people. But she's described in the, the record as an aged quack with a long face. Uh, there's, there's many of these. Vincent Lancelli is a Venetian practitioner who travels the country, and uh, we know of him in Wrexham, for example, uh, when he's reported as causing a woman to void a worm five yards long. Uh, so individual stories uh, abound, really. So women were um, could be medical practitioners at this time, then, could they? Um, yeah, it's a bit of a difficult thing. They're not bad medical practice, but it's more it's far more difficult for women to become trained. But it's it's more difficult for women, but they do do it. Now, for example, um, uh, women have a role in uh, obstetrics um, and midwifery. And women are, have a very definite area of expertise in all things relating to women's bodies. So there will be specialist women in communities who are called, you know, if, for example, if um, a lady's having difficulty in childbirth, um, there'll be women who, who can... Uh, help with that. There are also the, the so-called wise women, the informal magical healers in communities who gain a reputation um, for healing. So it, it's less likely, uh, less common to find women surgeons um, than women who actually practice medicine, who give out medical remedies, let's say. The, doing the physical practice of medicine is less common, but they will sell medicines and they will um, write receipts. It's also worth saying, of course, that in the average um, household, in this period, a woman is expected to have um, medical knowledge to be able to minister medicines to her family. 
Okay. And what do you think are some of the key contributions to medicine that have been made by these early modern medical practitioners? Difficult question to answer because that takes us into concepts of progress. And we tend as medical historians to try and get away from any notion of progress. Um, Also, the systems of medicine we use now are completely different to what they used then. But on the other hand, this is a very large body of people um, engaged in the relief of pain and suffering. You know, we, we have to remember that uh, whilst obviously some people are in, in it for the profit, there's abundant evidence to say that many did it for charitable reasons and for genuine, um, genuinely wanting to help their communities. You know, it's, um, we, they tend to have a bad reputation, I think, medical practitioners um, of all sorts, when in fact um, what even some of the stories in the database are telling us now is that, you know, in many cases, these are interesting people who were trying their best under often very difficult circumstances. Um, And have you come across any problems um, in your research? Uh, Part of the main problem has been the sheer number of names that we're having to sift through and the sheer numbers of sources that we're having to look at. Um, For example, the the amount of terms by which a practitioner could be known is one problem, but equally sometimes the sources and the references are obscure. It's not always easy to tell if you're looking at the same person by the same name, for example. Uh, It's not uncommon to find somebody referred to maybe as a surgeon in one document and as a gentleman in in another. So it sort of raises questions about, well, what is that person's occupation? Are they a surgeon all the time or do they just do it on an ad hoc uh, basis? It's also worth saying that we wouldn't have been able to necessarily do what we're doing now 20 years ago. The massive amounts of sources that are now online enable us to get free access to so much data. But in turn, that can cause its own methodological problems. And in fact, one thing that uh, historians are now looking at is that it's changing the way we work. If we're not able to look at the original manuscript sources or um, you know, if we choose to look at them online instead, does that affect the way we regard them? and the way we use these sources. So I think um, in many ways what we're doing reflects changes in current uh, history and the way history is written. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. eBay Motors is here for the ride. With over 122 million parts, you can make sure your number one ride or die stays running smoothly. Brake kits, LED headlights, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only, exclusions apply. That was Dr. Alan Withy of the University of Exeter. You can find out more about this project at emp.exeter.ac.uk. And now we have a short advertisement break. 
Join the debate as we take the US presidential election under the microscope at the British Academy's free panel discussion on Monday 10th of December 2012. Hear political experts from both sides of the Atlantic scrutinize the election in this one-off special event, looking at the key issues which framed the US presidential campaign and what impact they had on the outcome. Register now to attend British Academy free events at www.britac.ac.uk forward slash events. During a biblical seven years in the middle of the 19th century, Ireland experienced the worst disaster a nation can suffer, a famine. Ireland's best-known historian, Tim Pat Coogan, revisits this dark chapter in world history in his thought-provoking new book, The Famine Plot. Drawing on new archival evidence, Coogan reveals the British government's role in this vivid and horrifying period of human suffering. Mary Jordan and Kevin Sullivan, Pulitzer Prize-winning journalists of the Washington Post called The Famine Plot, a must-read in Ireland, England, America and every other land where Irish hearts beat. Discover England's role in Ireland's greatest tragedy, The Famine Plot, by Tim Pat Coogan. Available now in hardback and ebook. Historian Stephen Bourne's new book, The Motherland Calls, examines the contribution of black people from Britain and the Empire to the war against the Axis. I paid a visit to Stephen recently to find out more about this little studied aspect of the conflict. So, okay, Stephen, so first of all, do you have any idea of how many black people from Britain and parts of the Empire served in the Second World War? I would say that it, it, the numbers run into the thousands. There aren't accurate figures because the RAF and the Army and the Navy didn't record ethnicity yeah. when they were recruiting people from the colonies. So there's no accurate figures that we can get. But it does, based on the information that we have, I have included a section on statistics because people like numbers. I can't off the top of my head remember the numbers, but it certainly runs into thousands and thousands of... If you include all the colonies. And, and did pe these people... I know it's quite a sort of disparate group, but did they serve in all aspects of the British war effort? Yes, eventually uh, men and women from the British Empire did serve in, in all aspects of the war. There, there was what was called a colour bar at the beginning of the war. The army would not allow anyone of um, non-European descent to be commissioned as an officer. So Dr Howard Moody, who was a Jamaican community leader who was based in Peckham in South London uh, and founder of the League of Coloured Peoples, in 1931, which was one of the most proactive black organisations in Britain at the time, he, when his son, Joe Moody, w was rejected for a commission in the army as an officer, which he was entitled to, Harold Moody, his father, fought that through the colonial office and at government level. Harold had that influence and that was quickly overturned and Joe Moody then became what we thought first black officer in the British Army. But since then we've discovered that Walter Tull, 
in fact, was one of the first in the First World War. But again, we don't know all the stories, so there might be others before Watertoll. The RAF would not recruit black men until after the Battle of Britain in 1940, when we lost many, many RAF personnel. Then they had to look a bit further for recruits. And in fact, the first Nigerian to be recruited into the RAF was Babatundi Alakaya. I think it was the end of 1940, beginning of 41, and he was followed by Peter Thomas, who was desperate to join the RAF. And, and Peter Thomas in 1941, again from Lagos in Nigeria, became the first African to be commissioned as an officer in the RAF. So in this time of war, I suppose, when there was this great need, the, the idea of racial discrimination kind of became secondary to the need to win the war, I suppose. Is that why that, you think that might have been relaxed? It did, as, as the war intensified very quickly in 1940 with the evacuation of Dunkirk, the Battle of Britain, the Blitz, uh, the need to relax these discriminatory rules uh, became much, much greater. And also people were realising the hypocrisy that was going on, that we were fighting fascism, we didn't want to be overrun by Nazis, fascists, and yet we were practising it at home. Black people in Britain and part of the empire had suffered a lot of discrimination under the British through history. Did they still feel enthusiastic about supporting the British war effort? It's an interesting question, that, about the <coughs> why black men and women from the colonies, from the empire, would want to support what was perceived by many as a white man's war. That is still very much the case today. Young black radicals still say that on the internet in discussions. It, it, at the time, there wasn't one reason, there were many reasons. When I've spoken to elders, black elders who joined the services, it's very clear that some joined for adventure. Ulrich Cross, for example, who joined the RAF, would say that I wanted to be in the RAF, I wanted to join for adventure. Others would say that there was a commitment of sorts by the British government to give independence to the colonies after the war, or at least open up a serious dialogue after the war. So some felt that that, that that could happen if they supported the mother country, if they supported Britain. Others, like Sam King from Jamaica, who I, I know quite well, he's a local man, uh, lives, lives in the same sort of area as I do, so I've known him on and off for years, said to me that they had a choice in the islands, the Caribbean islands, he was from Jamaica, and he said either we stay with the British Empire or we allow ourselves to be overrun by the Nazis. And the empire was the lesser of the two evils. It wasn't perfect. He didn't approve of living in a colony and all the deprivations and limitations that, that were imposed on, on the people of the colonies. But that, that was his feeling. That more recently, there's been the story, too late for my book, of, of John Barnes's grand... I think it was his grandfather in 
the programme Who Do You Think You Are? I mean, that was a revelation to me, that his grandfather, I think, went to prison uh, in Jamaica for refusing to support the war effort. Totally against it, totally against getting involved. Uh, so there's, there's more understanding that is needed on this subject. My book, I hope, sort of cracks the subject open a bit. It's by no means definitive or covers everything, but I've tried to cover as many bases as I can. But certainly the reasons and the motivation for joining and supporting the, the war effort were varied, and all, all of them valid. How, how were these people accepted by their white colleagues in the services? From what I've uncovered and, and, and included in the book, by and large, the, 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 the black men and women who joined the forces, uh, particularly like in the RAF, where you have to work very close together in, a, mm. in close proximity and support each other and face death. I mean, like Ulrich Cross kind of spoke, speaks about this. Uh, and great camaraderie, great support for each other. Billy Strachan, who was a more radically-minded Jamaican who joined the RAF, expressed some experiences that he found negative because he was from a very light-skinned, middle-class Jamaican family. He wasn't used to kind of being spoken of as the brown person or some sort of racial comment uh, um, that was meant maybe in some cases as a friendly thing, but he wasn't used to that. And he found that quite upsetting at the time. But by and large, once that uniform went on, Nadia Katus, who, who I know very well, she joined the ATS in 1943. You see, the black women in the West Indies were not allowed to join up. White West Indians could join, but black West Indian women were, were barred right up until about 1942-43. Nadia was one of the first to join up. She was raring to go. As soon as she heard on the radio that down at Drill Hall in British Honduras, as it was known then, it's now known as Belize, she was straight down there on her bike, was one of the first to sign up. And she had a great time. She said she came to England, trained up in Edinburgh to... Um, and was accepted, had a great time, and in, 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 in enjoyed the war. And, but again, people's experiences were always very different. For some black men and women in the services, once the um, African-American GIs arrived in England, in their thousands, if you talk about numbers, there were thousands upon thousands of, of black GIs coming into the country but of course the American army brought their segregation policies with them and so the, then the West Indian and African recruits noticed the change in, in attitudes but a lot of the British people the white Britons stuck up for the black recruits Did, did these black recruits from, from the West Indies from um, Africa, did they feel any kinship with the black GIs that came over? Was there any, any bonds formed there? I think there were bonds formed, but I think they were, because the black GIs were so segregated from the rest of British society, uh, that there, was, there wasn't as much contact as, as perhaps there could have been. 
but I think there definitely was a kind of kinship, a fellow feeling, and in fact, a lot of the West Indian guys that were over here stuck up for them and, and were quite protective. There were battles, as there was a battle in, oh, I think it was Gloucester. There was, there's a, a, a marvellous character in my book called Baron Baker, who was from Jamaica and joined the RAF towards the end of the war. And there was a lot of friction in the village between the white American GIs and the black GIs. And then the, the West Indian soldiers got involved and there was this almighty battle. But when they all went back to camp, Baron Baker spoke out and said, we're not little Roosevelt's black boys, you know, we're British subjects and you treat us with respect. And there was, so there was this interesting sort of feeling amongst the West Indians particularly that they were not to be treated like the black GIs who they felt were oppressed and couldn't... Some, in some cases, they couldn't understand why the black GIs didn't fight back, but they didn't have a, an understanding of how deep the racism and the segregation went in, in America. But what intrigues me is... Were there any white GIs that stuck up for the black GIs? We never hear about that. And in my mind, that must have happened. The only example I've been able to find is in 1944, um, Powell and Pressburger, the film direct filmmakers, yeah. made very many classic British films, made a film called Canterbury Tale. And they had a white American GI in the film who had some sort of amateur acting background before he joined the American army. And the long and short of it is, he actually has an acting role in the film, was paid a fee of something like £500, was not allowed to accept it from the filmmakers because he was an, a serving American soldier. So it's on record in, the, in Harold Moody's um, newsletter for the League of Coloured Peoples that he donated the money to the NAACP, the National Association for the Advancement of Coloured People, the big black American organisation. Um, that's some gesture mm. for a white GI. So, and not all white GIs were racist, but how many of them would have stuck up for their black compatriots? But there doesn't seem to be any reference to that anywhere. No, not that I've ever heard of. No. The, you know, the black um, service people who came to Britain, they, you say they were treated reasonably well by their white counterparts. How were black people in Britain treated normally at that point? Were they accepted, say, in the 1930s? Do we have any idea? Was, was it better in the war, basically, for them? It certainly improved in the war. Before the war, the numbers were smaller. So at the outbreak of war, because we didn't include ethnicity on our census, there's no way of knowing the true figures of black people in Britain in 1939. So when the war broke out, it is estimated that there were about 10 to 15,000 black people in Britain, uh, possibly more, but not a great number. But again, the experiences were very different. Some black people experienced discrimination. The black seamen who had settled down in Cardiff in the, 19, in the 1930s were treated appallingly, even though they'd married and had families. Um, there was moves to repatriate them, even though they were British subjects and had settled here. So, but there were other extremes. My, my adopted Aunt Esther in Fulham, 
and her father were, were treated with respect in in the white working class community that they 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 were living in so it it's the the experiences are again are very varied there's no one experience that fits all it, it it's in in the world of theater black entertainers by and large were protected and looked after and and but there but no black woman could get a job as a nurse in britain in the 1930s there was a color bar there and again that was one of the campaigns that dr harold moody um, fought to try and uh, end that kind of discrimination in in the medical profession against black nurses and doctors it's very hard for black medical people to get to get work before the war so it's all very varied and, and complex and but it but there was enough discrimination going on in britain for dr harold moody to to set up this organization and try to to protect black black citizens in britain from discrimination in jobs and housing and britain was at the time fighting a notoriously racist enemy when say um, black people were captured by the the Germans or the Italians, were they treated worse than their white counterparts? Yes, there is evidence that if, a, if black American GIs were captured, they were separated from their white GIs and, and treated badly, put in concentration camps. Black Germans, we forget, or a lot of people are not even aware that there were black, a black community in Germany. There were black people in what became the occupied countries in Europe and they all not all of them but most of them did end up in the camps again we don't know the figures because figures weren't records weren't kept but there are some photographs of black internees in concentration camps but but, but that story has never really been highlighted and what may have happened to Britain's black community if the Nazis had invaded. I've often wondered about that. There are a couple of chapters in my book focused on Cy Grant and Johnny Smythe. They were both in the RAF. Cy Grant was from Guyana. Johnny Smythe was from Sierra Leone. And they were both shot down over the occupied territories and in turns in prisoner of war camps. Uh, so they were black British, if you like, uh, internees. But unlike the African-American internees, they were treated better. Cy Grant was kept with his uh, RAF prisoners, uh, his, his um, colleagues, if you like, and so was Johnny Smythe. They, they did suffer, but at least they weren't seg segregated or separated. And Cy Grant does tell a story of the only discrimination he came across within the camp, the prisoner of war camp, was from an American, a white American officer who, who was a bit incensed that they had a black prisoner of war with them that the racism during the war tends to come to the surface from the white the white gis that came into britain after the war had taken place were these black people these black veterans recognized for their contributions was the black community given more acceptance in britain because of what they'd done in the war no i think the great sadness of of all of this is that we in britain did not and still do not recognise the major contribution made by black people to the, to the Second World War, not just in the services, the armed services, but on the home front as well, and in the colonies, not just in Britain, but also in, in throughout the empire. We've never given that recognition. 
And I think that is appalling. If there had been better recognition immediately after the war, then perhaps the West Indians and Africans that came here in the 50s and 60s would have been treated better and would have been understood better, that, that this was their mother country, that they had taken part in the war. It's still, to this day, um, an appalling oversight and and exclusion that, that should should not be the case, which is why it's taken so long for someone like myself to come along and write a book. This is the first book that, that includes Caribbean, African, black British and, and African-American stories. There have been a few books before that have dealt with either the West Indian contribution or the African contribution. Professor David Killingray has written on the African contribution to the war. But mine has tried to sort of, under an umbrella, include all stories from all of those groups. And it, it's quite... And also, I've put at the end of the book a, a kind of memoriam, a short memoriam, to some of those who were killed in action and who died as in action. And, and they need to be better remembered, the ones that sacrificed their lives. But there is a quote that I, I use at the end of my introduction to the book from Ray Costello, the, the, Liver, the Liverpool uh, historian from Liverpool's black community, which has one of the longest-serving black communities in this country. He says, If black people are shown to have the capacity for bravery, it makes them human heroes even, and heroes should have freedom and independence. Britain did not want that. It was more difficult to conceal our contributions at the end of World War II because of the sheer numbers who fought. But the omission of the contribution of blacks to the British armed services is a crime comparable to slavery. And I agree with that. They sound like harsh words, but we need to have harsh words about this because, and to express this, because it is wrong that the, the major contribution of black people to the Second World War to Britain, to their mother country, has been so overlooked. And a lot of black people came to Britain not long after the war in things like the Windrush. Did they come with an expectation that after the war they would be treated better? Absolutely, because they, they were told, we invited them, we went out to the colonies, we had a lot of job vacancies, particularly lower paid jobs, because men coming back from the Second World War didn't want those jobs. They wanted a better life, understandably. They'd fought a war for six years. They wanted a better life for themselves and their families and were promised that. So they didn't want to be road sweepers and work on the underground. So those jobs were advertised in the West Indies and many came after the war. I'm simplifying it, but, but yes, of course there was an expectation that we, you are our mother country, we are British subjects, we helped you win the war. And then they come here and they're treated, you know, they, they experience discrimination in jobs and housing and in all sorts of areas of British life. So it, it's unsurprising that we've had some of the tensions, racial tensions in this country that we've had over the last sort of 60 odd years, 70 years. Um, but I really have to say that, that things could help 
one of the things that could help this is is the teaching of this subject in schools. If younger people are empowered, and I'm not just talking about young black people, I'm talking about all young people in our schools are taught about the sacrifices that were made by black people for this country. Um, if that was taught in schools more and there was a better understanding, then hopefully, then in the future, that, that, that we wouldn't have as, as, as kind of social problems that we have. That's a kind of idealistic way of looking at it and a simplistic way of looking at it. I understand that, but I do feel very passionately that book, the kind of books that people like me write on black Britons from history should be better recognised. That was Stephen Bourne. His book, The Motherland Calls, Britain's Black Servicemen and Women, 1939-45, is out now, published by the History Press. And look out for a review of Stephen's book in a forthcoming issue of BBC History magazine. Speaking of the magazine, you've still just about got time to grab a copy of our December issue. It includes articles on Edward I, Mussolini, suffragettes, witch trials and Thomas Beckett. And you can find it in all good news agents and on the Kindle, the iPad and the Kindle Fire. And that's about all for this episode. Do listen in next week when we'll be analysing the Victorian cadaver trade, among other things. And in the meantime, check out our website, historyextra.com, where you'll find all manner of great content. And you can, of course, keep in touch with us on Facebook and Twitter too. The History Extra weekly podcast is recorded in Bristol and produced by Dave Gibson. 